That's great. A half hour is great. Okay. <laughs> a half hour is great. Hey, Code Keepers, we're here with the great James Kilgore, and I tell you, he has a really intriguing book that we're going to be talking about, Understanding E-Carceration. <laughs> I hope I said that right. And look, I know some of you are saying, um, Seiko, what does this have to do with empowerment? Psycho, what does this have to do with black empowerment? Stay tuned. All right, welcome to Get On Code, the Fly Guy Show, which is a series of melanated conversations focused on empowerment, health, wealth, and knowledge of self. People think in binary choices because they are conditioned to. And on the wall was a picture of a wolf and a lion. I think the wolf was the Democratic Party, the lion was the Republicans. But the drug trade and all these illegal stuff that uh, people do, that's still economics. It's just that they couldn't do it in a traditional system. We're talking about melanated wealth. So we can build wealth, but we just, for some reason, don't seem to be able to transfer it. You had a great experience. Fine. That means nothing. What were you told as a child about education? You had to be how many times better? Every impression without an expression becomes depression. Peace, Code Keepers. It's time for another great episode of Get On Code. Get On Code, and the code is empowerment. Our code is empowerment. So everything you do should empower you. Everything you eat should empower you. Your political resources and political energy should empower you. And today we're going to have a really empowering conversation with the good man, James Kilgore, activist, researcher, and returned citizen. Now, one of the interesting things about Good Brother James is he has a new book, Understanding E-Carceration, Electronic Monitoring the Surveillance State and the Future of Mass Incarceration. This kind of reminds me of that, I think it was Tom Hanks movie or something like that. <laughs> you know, uh, so tell us about the book and tell us how you got involved in this space. Okay, thanks. Thanks very much, Deku. Um Well, I mean, I spent six and a half years in prison. I came out in 2009, and I was immediately put on an electronic monitor with house arrest and told I was only going to be allowed out of the house Monday through Friday from 6 a.m. to 10 a.m. And I was told that I should be able to take care of all my business between 6 a.m. and 10 a.m. I'm not sure what business that was I was supposed to be taking care of at that time of day, but that's what they told me, and uh, I'm, I had to cope with it. But I began asking questions about this technology, about this uh, electronic monitor. Um, whose idea was it? Who was making up the rules? Who's making money off of it? But most importantly, where's this technology going? At that time, it was just starting out uh, as a GPS tracker. I wondered what was happening to all the data that it captured. And I've kind of been researching this ever since. I mean, I've been fighting against mass incarceration on many levels. And one of those levels has been to fight against the spread of electronic monitoring and the idea that this is an alternative to incarceration. It's not an alternative to incarceration. It's an alternative form of incarceration. It converts your house into a, a carceral space, into a prison space. And, uh, makes your family members or your loved ones to be to be your jailers. So let's think of other ways that we can deal with people when they come out of prison that provide them with the resources and the support that they need 
in order to succeed rather than locking them in their house and then making them beg their parole agent for permission to go to the store and 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 buy and, and buy a, a quart of milk or permission to take the garbage out that's what you because that's what you end up doing when you're on a, on house arrest <clears throat> wow that's intriguing you're saying that your family members and those who are in the household with you actually become your jailers if right well, locked, I, if you're on they house have arrest? to monitor they have to a they have to monitor you because they don't want you going back to prison so if you decide you well i think i'm just going to take a walk around the block they're going to grab you and say get back in here you're not going anywhere uh, you, that's going to send you back to prison if you go out somewhere and you you know you've got movement and you, it gets close to the time you're supposed to be back and you're not and you're not home your family's going to start your family's going to start worrying about it. And who's got to pay all the costs for you? You can't get movement out of the house to get a job. And so who's got to bear all those costs? So when you're in prison, the state bears all those costs. When you come home, your family's bearing all those costs. So that's what I'm saying. They're playing the role, the role of the jailer. And they got this device sitting in their house that might be beeping and making noise and doing all kind of weird stuff. And, and they get the visits from the parole agents as well. So it's a carceral space. Uh, the term carceral, I, I, you know, looking at the word incarceration, I can understand it, but I just never really conceived that there was a concept of a carceral space. Uh, are there, other than the prison and home arrest, are there other carceral spaces? Well, I think any space where the threat of incarceration exists is a carceral space. So I would say, for example, for an undocumented person in the U.S., the entire the entire U.S. could be a carceral space because they could get they could get grabbed at any time uh, if they're undocumented and and not supposed to be in the country. So that's that's just an that's just one one example. But I mean, if you if you're being heavily surveilled by a you know, by by police, then any space is a carceral space because they can grab you and take you away. Um, surveillance cameras, all this technology that they have to surveil us, it converts our spaces into potentially carceral spaces, spaces where we can be punished. And of course, we know that this happens a lot more to black people than anybody else in this country. I mean, that's obvious. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, and, and so I'm wondering now. With uh, in Virginia, we have something called SROs, which are police officers that are placed inside the high schools and some of the right. middle schools. Uh, yeah. So, I guess that becomes a carceral space as well. If those if those police officers are, are arresting people and taking them taking them off the uh, out of school, off to court, or off to the jail. I mean, it looks kind of carceral to me. I, the threat of that of that policing action is always there. I mean, I've we've had you know we've had battles in our community. I live in Champaign Urbana, Illinois, so we've had battles around that issue here, SROs in the schools. I mean, we we kind of lost the battle. We we tried to push back against it and say, let's get some parents to come in. Let's get other people to come in and and, and monitor the hallways and try to keep this thing under control. But it hasn't worked. Not yet. Not yet. <laughs> Not yet. Um, one of your quotes is why all are impacted by the technologies of e-carceration, the criminalized sector of the working class. 
That part is intriguing. The criminalized sector of the working class, the black and brown populations who struggle to survive, face the most serious consequences. Um, I, I see two things in there that are really intriguing. The criminalized sector and the fact that black and brown face the most serious consequences. You just said a second ago that uh, you know blacks are more likely to be incarcerated than others. You're a white dude, <laughs> or you're really white skin. <laughs> I'm really light skin. <laughs> he's really light skin. All right, you're so all right. Um, <laughs> um, when you say this. Does this come from a point of experience? I know you mentioned that you were uh, criminalized yourself. Uh, you were incarcerated, rather. Incarcerated yourself. Sure. I mean, it doesn't... I mean, I've been, you know, I mean, I've been an anti-racist activist for most of my life. I lived a good... I lived 18 years of my life in Southern Africa, um, you know, working uh, in, 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 in support of the liberation struggle there and working with working class organizations there. So, I mean, I have a... Yeah, I mean I, that, that's that's like part of part of who part of who I am. But I think in terms of prison, I mean, all you've got to do is kind of walk through the gate and look around and see who's in there. I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, you can see that, you know, I mean, in California where I was, um, it was, uh, you know, about one third black, one third uh, Latinx, and one third white. But the you know the population of the state is overwhelmingly is overwhelmingly white. So you can see that you know black people are being disproportionately locked up. So when I talk, so uh, there's two things I want to point out here. I mean, I talk about people in prison as being part of the working class, and we tend we tend to think of them as you know as part of some kind of criminal class or the poor population or, or something. But we don't think of the fact that these are people that should be working. I mean, if we had an economy that was just, an economy that functioned appropriately, people that are in prison, they would be working jobs. They wouldn't be in prison. But but because the economy has structured itself to marginalize black and brown communities in particular, we have a huge layer of that population that ends up being involved in criminal activity and, and paying the price for that. And I think the, the best example that I can think of of the criminalization of the working class to really bring it home is Eric Garner, right? Here's a here's a man who's selling Lucy cigarettes on the street to try to support his family, and he ends up being killed by police, being criminalized because he's selling Lucy cigarettes. I mean, he's not selling heroin. He's not selling machine guns. He's selling Lucy cigarettes, and that he gets punished for that. But I'm just saying that in a in a in a rational society, somebody like Eric Garner would have had a job. They would have made a living wage. They'd have a healthcare system that met their needs, and they wouldn't have to be out doing that stuff in the first place. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, one of the other quotes that you made that I thought was really captivating was white supremacy lives in the court and for code keepers this is this is how it deals with black empowerment um so james when you say white supremacy lives in the court <laughs> go deeper in that man go deeper in well, that. i mean i mean who who's coming into court <laughs> it's disproportionately black and brown folks who are coming into the court who's running the court 
It's mostly white judges, mostly white prosecutors. And, you know, they just they just perpetuate the inequality. So we see it all the time. I mean, I've spent I mean, I've spent time in in court as somebody in the dock. I've spent I've spent time in court also in communities watching what happens, what watching what happens to people in the court, watching what happens to different people as they come through. And we see that, you know, black people get different sentences than white people for this for the same offense. Um, it's institutionalized. It's set up black people get charged differently than white people for the same for the same offense. Um, you know, they they get something stacked that, you know, they get charges stacked more heavily. So they end up with a longer sentence, even though what they've done is no different than what some the next uh, white defendant has done when they're in the course. And that doesn't mean this system overall lets white people down, lets white people off easily. I mean, hmm. poor white people in the courts, they, I mean, there's plenty of white people doing life prison in this system. Don't, don't get me wrong. So that's, there's that, there is that, but there's also the, you know, the Michael Cohen's and the, and the, you know, the privileged white folks who get, who get, you know, high priced lawyers and get, and get off easy. But, but there, there's a layer of the white population that pays the price. It's mostly, you know, from the poor layer sectors of the population, but as a whole, you know, black people and brown people face a different form of justice. Wow. Well, co-keepers, we're speaking with the good brother, James Kilgore, author of Understanding E-Carceration. So let's dive a little deeper into your book. Let's dive a little deeper into your book. Uh, one of the things that you stated that I thought was interesting was, like Grubhub, electronic monitoring brought the prison to me rather than taking me to prison. Uh, give me a little more on that narrative. Well, I'm just saying that, you know, when you're on an electronic monitor, they deliver this technology to you in the same way that a delivery person does. And they, I mean, with Grubhub, they're turning your, uh, they're turning your, your living room into a restaurant, right? But with electronic monitoring, they're turning your, your living room into a, into a jail cell, right? So, uh, you know, it's portable jail cell and they, wherever they take it, they can lock you in there and set the rules for, when you can leave and when you can't leave and how far you can go according to how they it's just like a it's like a google map i mean i've seen the the, the programs for these devices they can set a google map that'll allow you to go 10 feet from your front door or 10 miles from your front door so it's all it's all tech technology managed by a mentality that, that wants to punish people you've also said that electronic monitors are more than a tracking device. So inform us, man, do the knowledge. Well, electronic monitors are a tracking device. Yes, they're tracking your location. They have GPS capacity, which most of them do nowadays. And But they don't just record your location. Where does that location data go? It goes, it goes to what we call the cloud, right? That huge hard drive that's owned by Amazon, owned by Google Drive, uh, owned by Google, owned by Microsoft. So this is the cloud. It's it's this massive collection of databases. And from that, they're able to, so if they go back and look at your personal history, they're going to see data about you. Maybe you were in juvenile, maybe you were in juvenile detention. 
Maybe you had a long school disciplinary record. Maybe you were in child protection. Uh, your, your family was in, in, in child protection services. Maybe you were in, in, in family court. Maybe you have a history of, of substance use and so forth. All this comes across when they search your search you search for you in the database in the cloud and then they can turn around and combine that location data with that other data to paint a picture of you and decide hmm, is this guy going to commit more crimes or is he okay we can let him go so this is how they this is how they use that data so that's what i'm saying electronic monitoring is part of the surveillance state it's part of the way in which they monitor us and track us and keep our data in order to make sure they have us under their control. Now, when you say they, can you define who they are? Well, I'm talking about a, a they here really is is the, the combined forces of the, the state, the government, um, and the private corporations, big tech, that really controls this data. But they can't control this data without the complicity, without the, the contracts, without the funding from the government. So we can't just blame the companies because somebody in the government has to make a contract with them. Somebody has to agree to what they're doing in order for them to be able to operate and do what they do. Hmm. Now you also defined uh, how the tracking is facial recognition, license plate readers, closed circuit TVs, drones, social media monitors. So when you talk about this surveillance state and you talk about all these other aspects, how are they using these technologies in conjunction with the electronic monitoring? You know, you just mentioned how they can do it. Do you really see the, the, you know, the, the authority forces, the, the governmental forces using this to predict behavior and to try to prevent things from happening? I mean, you've done the research, you're a researcher. What do you see with all this? Well, I mean, part of what they're doing is they are putting together technology that predicts what people are gonna do. I mean, they have this thing called predictive policing. So they gather information on individuals, they gather information on locations, uh, and then they try to pull together as much information, as much data as they can about that particular person, about that particular location, and then decide, is this where it's going to happen? Is this where something, is this the person that's going to, that's going to, that's going to do something? And they have these very complicated mathematical formula, formulas that they use to try to predict this. And um, it's, 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 it's a little bit scary. It's the, you know, this movie minority report where they, you know, where they're do they're, predicting crimes before they happen and then trying to stop them. Well, I mean, that's what a lot of this technology is geared to do. And some of it, particularly facial recognition, has incredible racial bias. So there's a lot of research they've done on facial recognition technology, which basically tells us facial recognition software doesn't recognize black faces very well because they tested it all and, you know, they tested it all on mainly white people. So when they all of a sudden decide now we want to do facial recognition on black people, well, we didn't actually test it on black people. It doesn't work very well. So we misidentify black people a lot and we misidentify black women in particular a lot. So, um, you know, I mean, I, I remember this one where they, 
they use facial recognition on Oprah Winfrey and she came out a man, right? I'm just saying, you know, it's just like, the, the, so the technology itself <laughs> is not very effective. And so um, it's a little bit scary. Uh, the license plate readers, they, they often misread the license plates. And so you're one digit off and somehow your license plate ends up in the database of, of, uh, of, 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 of criminals. So you get pulled over <clears throat> by somebody because they misread your license plate and all of a sudden, you know, you're, you're, you're down on the ground um, while they're trying to figure out if you're really this person or not. I mean, I'm, a friend that happened to a friend of mine, you know, a, a black man that lives in uh, Oakland. He, he, uh, somebody, somebody took, stole his, uh, stole the license plate off his car and put another license plate on it. And he got pulled over by the cops. The cops pull him out, pull his family out, go through the whole nine yards because this license plate was on a hot list, but you know, it wasn't um, it wasn't him. But took him a while to to prove that. Wow. Wow. So, do you think they'll be using this information, this data, to make data driven uh, sentencing decisions? You know, the judges will be looking at this conglomerate of data to say. Uh, we're going to give him five years or 30 years because we realize there's a lot of discretion within the judicial system. Do you see it moving in that direction? That's scary. They, are, they already do that. They have risk assessment tools that they use to give people uh, a numerical rating um, as to whether or not how hard, how harsh a sentence they might give. So they have a, or to whether they might get bail when they're, when they're charged. So you have a, a risk assessment tool will look at things like what's your past criminal background? Um, are you employed? Are you a, I mean, do you have a, a stable residence? Um, do you have family supports? Uh, do you have any history of mental health issues? Do you have any history of drug usage? I mean, all of these things could be combined into a risk assessment tool. But we know once again, racial bias is entering in here because if you're gonna, if you're gonna look at somebody's criminal history already we know the criminal legal system is biased so if you're going to use somebody's criminal history as a way to decide whether they need to be sentenced more harshly it's going to favor it's going to favor people that don't have that criminal history which is going to be in favor of white people as opposed to black people who are more likely to have a criminal history and that's just the the, the, the way the situation is so yes this is this data is all being gathered to used to decide whether people are released from prison, whether they're released from jail, or what kind of a sentence they get when they're actually uh, brought in for final judgment. Wow. Code Keepers, we're learning and earning with James Kilgore, the author of Understanding Ecarceration. And uh, hey, let's talk about the book as we wrap up. We have about four minutes left in our time together. Uh, tell us a little bit about the book, you know, maybe the the process of doing the research or anything that stands out. But, you know, we want to make sure that people know about the book as well. So tell us about the book. Thank you. Well, the book, as I said, the book started really when I went on electronic monitoring and I started asking a lot of questions about it and not finding very satisfactory answers. So what I did then was I interviewed people that had been on the monitor and got their stories and kind of drew a picture of that. So the book the first part of the book is really about my experience of being under surveillance for many years, of also being on electronic 
monitor. But then I'm talking about the what happens to other people uh, on electronic monitor. But then also trying to attack the myth of electronic monitoring that it actually has some positive effect on people, which it which it absolutely doesn't. And, the, and there's no information to prove that. So I'm really looking at that particular technology. And that's kind of like the first half of the book. And then I begin to look at other technologies in other settings about how it's used, particularly against, uh, against uh, um, immigrants coming into the country through the Southern border, about how it's used internationally in places like uh, the Ga in Gaza where Palestinians are subject to massive surveillance which is not, which is similar to what happens in in black communities here in the U.S. And I don't know if you recall that during the Ferguson uprising, there was a lot of support coming from Palestinians for that uprising, and they were even giving people clues about how to deal with pepper gas when they got sprayed and so forth. So there's, so it's a global phenomenon as well. This technology run by companies that often have a global have a global impact. And then I'm out, also at the end talking a little bit about how we can resist this, how we need to try to regulate it, try to limit its use, reduce the harm that it does, scrap some of it, which doesn't really have any positive uh, outcome, and think about how we can use resources in a better way than on the technologies of punishment. Let's give people, and one of my recommendations is give everybody who's coming out of prison a laptop and a cell phone, right? They're going to need it. If they don't have that, they're not going to be able to survive. So that's just a simple one. But we need to provide them with resources that uh, that enable them to change their lives without having to go back to what landed them in prison in the first place. All right, Code Keepers, we're hanging out with the, uh, the researcher, the activist, the author. And this is not your only book as well. Uh, Mr. James Kilgore. <laughs> uh, so we need to pick up this book and what's the name of the earlier book as we close understanding mass incarceration so that really goes back into the history of mass incarceration how did we get here um you know the whole and uh, in, in particularly i mean how we came to have this whole jim crow new jim crow kind of system uh the war on drugs and all of that so i'm going through the details of that history and then this is kind of updating what's happening at the moment as we see the spread of e-carceration and uh, technological punishment. Beautiful. So Code Keepers, make sure you pick up his book. Hey, if, if you're looking for a good read, if you're looking for a read that's going to lead to empowerment, you know, he gives solutions like he was saying towards the end. So we all need the solutions. He said white supremacy lives for it and he has strategies to address that as well. So, Brother Kilgore, man, thank you for being on the Get On Code Show. Code Keepers, keep the code, live the code, act the code. You know, our code is empowerment. So, get on code, share the code, teach the code, become the code. Our code is empowerment. And Miss Jelly says right. peace. <laughs> thank Ms. you, Jelly Ms. says Jelly. Peace. peace. If you got a piece from Miss Jelly, then everything is good. <laughs> All right, that's thank good. Thank you, James. Know. Take care. I'm feeling good. I'm feeling.